Welcome back to Pop and Schlock Live. I'm going to turn the microphones down a little bit because I feel like I'm screaming. <laughs> uh, probably are. I'm Old man not. yells at cloud. Old man <laughs> yells at microphone. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to KPFT HD2. This is Pop and Schlock Live, the program that examines pop culture and media from a critical and analytical lens. I am your host, author, educator, and general all-around uh, cranky person, Jay Goodson Dodd, also known as Jake for brevity's sake. I'm going to keep doing that until I run it into the ground. With me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Nudo. Hi. And she's going to get annoying very very quickly. Ah! <laughs> Happy birthday us. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, tomorrow is our 1 year anniversary on KPFT. Yay. Yay. When does the stripper pop out of the cake? <laughs> the stripper was the friends that we made along the way. Oh. Yeah, yeah. that's entirely true. true. Yeah. <laughs> the stripper was in was our in hearts our, and minds. Was in our cakes the whole, whole time. time. <laughs> but yeah, it, no, it's it's been a really fantastic year. We are happy and a little bit startled to still be here, but not ungrateful for the opportunity. Um, as most people know, we started off as a podcast uh, that Jake started. Not I wasn't necessarily one of the hosts early on, but we Jake brought started, her. We brought her on after uh, we realized that there was a. Uh, palpable charisma in our uh, antagonism. Yes. Uh, so I think it was maybe about 2014 was when you started the show? Uh, oh, Lord, no. We actually started it in 2013. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It, uh, it, it's, we've been around in one way, shape, or another for a long time now. Yeah. So, so Poppenschlock, the podcast that became a radio show that's now archived as a podcast. I know. Full circle. And how how recursive of us. You. I know, right? Appropriately postmodern. <laughs> What's it? Basically, we're just really proud of the fact that we haven't been bombed into oblivion by FCC drones at this point. Uh, the fact that we made it a full year is uh, impressive on multiple levels. <laughs> anyway, but uh, we're not ungrateful. We're not ungrateful. We're not ungrateful at all. We, that's that's our long rambling way of saying thank you to everybody who listens on a weekly basis. You guys yeah. are great. Uh, whether you listen to us uh, on the uh, the Facebook Live or if you are uh. listening on KPFT HD two or whether you catch us as a podcast on iTunes or Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to us, thank you so very much. <laughs> and those those of you who also have donated to KPFT as well to help keep us on air. Yeah, big big ups to our patrons. Um, that would be King James the first and uh, Buster Squirlington. Those are our two big ones. Uh, so, um, anyway, let's uh, let's get right down to it. Um, we are going to be talking tonight about what a film that uh, some people have called the worst thing to come out in 2018. Um, and the only thing that stops that from being true for me is the fact that I didn't actually see it in 2018. Um, so, before we get to that, I do want to go ahead and toss things over to our uh, our guests for the evening. Yay! Um, we have one returning guest who, uh, try as he might, is not going to be taking over my lead host Dang. spot. And uh, the other is oh, a first-timer. So, so uh, go ahead and introduce yourselves, guys. 
Uh, hey, well, uh, glad to be back. I'm welcome back. I don't know. Oh, yeah. hey. I can see why they've had you back. Yeah. Very smooth. <laughs> uh, Brian Kondrak here. Uh, glad to be a part of this again, and glad to talk about Welcome to Marwin because there's a lot that was missing from that movie, and we can probably help them make a new one pretty soon. No one. Yeah. I, I think if we look at the box office receipts for that movie, um, even even if the Lord God descended from on high with a revised script, I don't think anybody would take a chance probably, on this thing ever again. Probably not. And uh, hi, I'm uh, Steph DeWagner and uh, perform with Brian and Meredith and they've been doing improv forever and just have all sorts of uh, hopefully interesting things to contribute. We so. wouldn't have asked you here if we didn't think yeah. you did. Well, I figure I'll have that Gen X uh, mom perspective for you. Uh, so. the, Even though a, I'm not a mom. And, but that's an all-important yeah. demographic that is all too overlooked in modern society. And what so. is the podcast? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of like a message in a bottle. I promise you I know what a podcast is. Okay. <laughs> no, we're very happy to have you, and we'll be very happy to have you back. Awesome. Oh, great. All right. So I'll fire Jake and <laughs> replace him with both of you. You, thre yes. you threaten that every week, but whenever I'm not here, the podcast doesn't happen. That, that is not true. <laughs> I remember to turn the on-air sign for the Bohemian Rhapsody episode. That is true. But I, you know what? I'm going to say that that wasn't you. I'm going to say that that was Karen watching over you. So, mm, thanks, so Karen. sidebar, thanks, Karen. how Karen. come Bohemian Rhapsody didn't win... For best comedy or musical, but Green Mile won for. I'm very confused about those awards last yeah, week. Yeah, the Green the Green Mile was definitely green, a comedy. Not, or musical. not Green Mile, not Green, green Mile, the Green <laughs> Green Book. That was a different. <laughs> well, I know. I'm trying to imagine a world where the Green Mile was turned into a musical comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wait, P. that's a good idea. Yeah, um, no, it's Green Book. Right I'm very confused yeah. about how, yes, I guess you just get to pick what category your movie goes into. Wherever you yeah. submit it, whatever Which you I, submit I, it I, to. I have, not, uh, I have not witnessed that film based off of the recommendations of people whose uh, esteem I, uh, I trust. Which one, Bohemian Rhapsody or Green Book? Green Book. I did see Bohemian Rhapsody. It's delightful. Which, I haven't seen either yet. <laughs> do you only see what? the movies that we tell you to see? No, I just don't. I don't see movies as much as I used to. I went and saw Into the Spider-Verse by myself, and I was just like, well, not by myself, but with my wife, but it was like, it was basically in my head the whole time, just like, yes, this is awesome. But that's was... a very different, like, movie. Oh, you, that you need to be, totally you need to be care You need to be careful with that, because we will turn this podcast into a let's talk about Into the Spider-Verse <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <laughs> because we didn't want to stop talking about it whenever we did the episode yeah. over that. When we did our, our year-end wrap-up about movies that we didn't see... Somehow it's For still... For the movies that we saw but we didn't talk about, it still ended up being about oh, Spider-Verse. That's hilarious. Yeah. No, I just... <laughs> I just need oh. to go see more movies. We got a we got a we got a message from a previous ghost uh, pre ghost pre previous Ooh. guest uh, uh, Sasha who was here for the uh, for the uh, Happy Time Murders episode who uh, it was apparently is sad because she uh, loved the documentary that uh, inspired this film and I feel like uh, you are not alone in that. No, um, Marwin Call was a very popular doc documentary that I 
was going to see, but then I had errands that I forgot that I needed to run. <laughs> Stupid time. Ugh. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, because I wanted to watch it. I wanted to watch it as well, but it just kind of crept up on me. I honestly didn't get a chance to see the film until uh, yesterday afternoon uh, because I just could not make it to the theater at the times whenever it was showing. Because after the first week of release, they cut it down to like two times. Yeah, like oopsie. And it's like, <laughs> it's like nobody's gonna see this. Uh, and I was in a theater alone with somebody else who fell asleep. Sleep. So oh, wow. that's uh, that's the kind of film this thing was, yeah. um, and I feel like let's we can kind of dive into it. Um, this is a film that um, if you look at the pedigree of the people behind it, um, Robert Zemeckis is one of those filmmakers who's always going to have his place in the Hollywood pantheon because you've got your Back to the Future, you've got your Who Framed Roger Rabbit to a lesser extent because me and Meredith are not boosters in this particular club but you've got Forrest Gump um and Castaway things with, like with, that with all due respect my my bitterness towards Forrest Gump has a lot to do with the fact that I love Shawshank Redemption so my opinion as always should be taken with a grain of salt or five or six or an entire ocean's worth yeah I mean it's history has shown that uh that year Shawshank was robbed it's the same situation uh back in the early 2000s whenever Crash took best picture and it should not have um but that's neither here nor there um so the pedigree on this it's you know it, it's up there Robert Zemeckis is a, is a you know a well respected filmmaker um he's doing what ultimately amounts to an adaptation of a very popular documentary and it just in my mind did not come together uh i do not think that this is the worst film of 2018 um definitely not um it's 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 too um it's too how can i say this um it's at least functional Mm -hmm. in doing what it wants to do it has too much leslie mann for it to be the worst (laughs) movie of 2018 (laughs) that's that's true um it it has um the appropriate balance of merit weaver uh to allow me to say (laughs) that uh it's 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 definitely not the worst thing i saw last year if if i'm being perfectly honest uh, uh i have to go back to i think happy time murders has to be the worst thing i saw last year um so there's that um this is a film that just simply, for me, does not come together for a lot of reasons. But I feel like all of us had sort of a different takeaway as far as how we felt about this particular film. I mean, I the know. minute I saw the trailer, when it was still called The Women of Marwin before yeah, they changed, before the, they changed title, the title, I was like, oh my gosh, there's Steve Carell's Oscar. Like, yeah. if I was so convinced, I could not wait to see this movie kept saying how excited I was about it and then um, I probably of everybody will probably have the least negative things to say but I yes it, I've, I've been researching kind yeah. of the documentary and um, reading other reviews and things like that so but it, your positive opinions are still val- valid here and <laughs> we're not here to change your mind or talk over you or argue with you yeah. <laughs> oh good ju- unlike home speak for yourself Nudo that's exactly what I'm here for <laughs> <laughs> well I'm not yeah. I'm the nice cop today but yeah. I will say I saw Aquaman last week last no. weekend it was like how can I like this more than I liked Welcome to Marwin? That's kind of That's the place a I'm at. Statement, but it is well, to be fair, to be fair, Julie Andrews has the Kraken. <laughs> Yeah, if uh, if if you want to if you want to uh, if you want to 
hear Where the sound of my for that? if you want to hear the sound of my brain leaking out of my facial facial orifices listen to the episode about Aquaman because that movie is perplexing and the plot hole that we brought up about uh, it's like oh but in Justice League he already went to Atlantis um, they just kind of hand waved it away as saying oh that wasn't really Atlantis in Justice League Oh like, God. yeah, sure, Zack Snyder. Um, that, oh. that that sounds fake, but okay. Um, as far as Welcome to Marwin is concerned, I, I honestly don't have a whole lot especially negative to say about what the film presented so much as what the film didn't present. And we'll get into that in a little bit. I do agree with you that um, in an alternate universe, this is where Steve Carell got yeah. his, his Oscar. Um, and the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking about how stellar a physical performing actor he is. Um, so much of his performance came from the nuance of his, his physicality and just having dealt with people who, uh, are experiencing or suffering from PTSD, I have seen his movements in those people. And I can tell that he probably did a lot of character study to figure out how he was going to portray this particular character. And I think that acting wise, he did a very, very phenomenal job. I think that the problems that Meredith and I had, because we talked a lot about this uh, yesterday and uh, today, is that it doesn't do a service to the actual story that uh, was presented in the documentary and that there seems to be a sanitization of the story in, I guess, to make it feel more palatable to general audiences. But in a way, I think they scrubbed away enough of the edges that it made it sort of not interesting, if that makes sense. It's just like bland tapioca and, more yeah, it, than palatable. It was like, yeah, I could eat this, but why would I want Oh, I love tapioca, <laughs> so that's not a good analogy. Well, sorry. Any, but, um, any it's just unflavored a, It's just a raw pudding. cube of tofu. Yeah. Nothing, that's all no it cooked, is. It's, it, hasn't been, it hasn't been cooked. It hasn't observed any flavor. It's just there. Okay. Well, I feel like a lot of the pushback has been people there not being enough maybe why or enough of uh, enough of the backstory but maybe that's a choice you know i don't necessarily need to know all the details of everything that happened yeah. leading up to that is you know is it i guess the question is is it enough to understand that we're looking at his therapy from this terrible beating and situation without getting like into too deeply to yeah into the details of it well there know? were some, there were some elements of his real story that i think would have helped us better to understand where he's coming from his emotion like the emotional backstory of the character because uh as meredith pointed out she she has compiled a list of very wonderful articles and reviews that kind of delve into this film because as much as audiences rejected it it is a film that is being written about quite extensively and one of the things that I feel was glossed over in the film that really would have added an extra layer is the fact that um, during his uh, physical therapy in the aftermath of the attack, uh, the reason why his physical therapy stopped and the reason that he didn't get uh, any sort of uh, mental counseling is because his Medicaid ran out. Yeah. yeah. And that was something that was completely glossed yeah. over and in the film. I think that given big... that this story is trying to be prescient, leaving that out, I feel... It, it could have even just been a couple of lines. Yeah, and it would have and it, it would have made the story more resonant. Yeah, it would have added way. a little more texture. So I, I think, like I said, my 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 negatives and my minus column are, are more about things that that were left out. Like I'm I'm not necessarily one for 
slavish dedication and veracity in the story. Like we love Polka King. Yeah. And there were there were definitely some liberties taken with Polka King. Um but well, there were liberties I, taken in Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. And, oh, so many. And it's, it's one of those things where that's been a major point of contention among a lot of people who saw that film is the way that certain elements were presented or how things were left out and changes made for, like, why did they make that change? Um, but there's I, changes Whereas like... I feel there wasn't much... I don't feel like there was a change or a shift away from the actual story being presented here, being adapted from that documentary, what I feel is that the rough edges were sanded off. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily the changes that bothered me, but the omissions. And I feel like there's a difference between an omission and, you know, changing the story for the sake of drama. The the big change was, like, in the the movie, he was a comic book artist. And in real life, he was a carpenter that was still an artist. He would still draw. He was just an amateur. Right, but he was not a published... That doesn't really, I don't think that changes much. No, it that just shows know. that he already had a creative mind to begin with and a thoughtful mind and one that was constructive and about building things and making things. So it still worked. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to, it's not like I'm thinking to myself, Rawr. but I feel like it's, it's decision to be something that we can obviously see a lot of contemporary parallels like the fact that he actually was not attacked by nazis yeah that was one, that was the um, one change that i that i did uh kind of roll i'd not say roll my eyes out but raise an eyebrow to is the idea of making his attackers uh like prominent neo-nazis yeah. as opposed to just run-of-the-mill everyday like sometimes people who commit hate crimes are not people who have a swastika tattooed no, on their they're neck just people they're just they're just terrible like. people who wear everyday clothes and until they do something terrible or say something terrible they are just everyday people in the crowd and i think that would have been more resonant especially in today's political climate right um it also i feel like um the manufactured drama of him showing up to court and uh testifying against his attackers um there wasn't a whole lot of weight put into that um there it took up maybe a grand total of 10 minutes worth yeah. of screen time whereas that's a that's a in any other movie that would be a huge emotional yeah, that's beat. A major that was a major like event in his life that's like and kind of led to his change in personality and like his acceptance of what he was going on but there is nothing really like intense about it yeah there was a yeah. fight scene and or whatever what I'm, but and, it was like and one of what's the, happening here and one of the things that this is that uh like again it's not a change it's an omission is that the film does not uh mention the fact that by the time uh mark was presenting his photos by the time they got to exhibition um the people that had committed that crime had already been sentenced only Three out of the five went to prison, and the rest of them were already out on parole by the time uh, his installation went to gallery or got yeah. published. Um, and I think that uh, we don't see, we don't hear or see the sentencing. Yeah, the other, it's, it's an omission. It's it. an omission because I feel like if they had, uh, if they had changed reality to make it seem like, oh yes, they did get the book thrown at them, they did yeah. get sent away for a long time, that would be untrue to reality, and that would be, um, I, I feel like that would feel wrong. Mm-hmm. But they didn't spend enough time developing that part of the storyline to, if they got away with it, that we would truly be invested enough to care, I think. And um, that is one of the shortcomings of the film that kind of stuck with me. Another change as well uh, was that he was never addicted to painkillers. The... Was he addicted to painkillers in this version of the movie? Yeah. The, the drugs he was taking were seemed more like psychological or no, psych those were, meds. those and... were painkillers. Because they were talking about like the yeah. one a day, the overdosing, yeah. the opioids. 
Yeah. He yeah. he was not addicted to opiates. Uh, he actually his major change was that he was going through all of his old journals and thinking to himself, "Wow, I was actually really super racist back then." Hmm. And a lot of it was a lot of the, the the more violent and sexual things that would happen in his stories. And I can kind of understand sanitizing the stories Perhaps. and not showing the really violent and sexual ones. That I can understand. But his his journey was not one of addiction. He was an alcoholic prior to the mm -hmm. attack. That, right, that right. is that, true. And they, they, that, they, they, they get that out pretty well. They, yeah. they, they touched on that. Yeah. But they left out the part that his journey was not one of overcoming an opiate addiction. It was one of overcoming his own prejudices and biases because he didn't want to be like the men who attacked him. He didn't want to be a person that was full of hate and that would, would say and do things that would hurt other people. So... And that, I guess, is another reason why I didn't like that they turned the bad guys into neo-Nazis, yeah. because I think yeah. that a story of somebody who has been hurt by the, you know, the, the people that don't have the swastikas tattooed on them, seeing himself in that and then making a concerted effort to try and overcome a lot of the hate that he has inside yeah. of himself, it's... Again, that's I, that is something that I feel might also be very contemporary and yeah. something that we need well, to examine and we need to look at. Well, let me ask you all this. Um, one of the things that I felt walking out of the film is I don't feel like the script had a good idea of what it wanted to do, what its main narrative was. I don't feel like it was uh, I don't feel like it was very consistent tonally or in terms of uh, giving uh, giving Mark an overall arc or what they wanted to focus on as being his arc, because if they had stuck with uh, giving us the backstory of who he was and trying to like you like utilizing what happened to him as a second chance to reinvent his personality that was completely glossed over um there's it was, it was mostly a script giving steve Carell a chance to show off his acting chops yeah it, it feels like they didn't want to get they didn't want to give him an arc they just yeah. wanted to give him moments yeah and that, that you said that perfectly yeah. because that's exactly what i was just thinking there wasn't ever one like Yay, he got he this did or it. that. Yeah. It was all these little like, oh, okay, well, Ooh, yeah. check that off the list. Yeah, check that. He's, now, he's I don't know if it's a victim of editing. There, you know, there could be tons of footage that they were like, oh, this movie could have been three and a half hours. Right. And so we're just going to have to lightly touch right, on all yeah. these things. But yeah, that's perfect. The moments is the perfect. Yeah, way. I was going to ask you stuff as someone who, who probably had the most positive opinion in this room. What do you what do you feel about like tonally, structurally? What do you feel about some of the changes that we made narrative wise? Like, right. I, you know, it's interesting because I talked to somebody today who <laughs> I would say like a muggle, like a non-performer, a non, you know, and didn't know that this was even inspired by a true story. Probably would never had seen, never even looked up or seen or watched any clips of the um, documentary or researched like any articles. And I thought, you know, I tried to think in her perspective, like she would probably go see this and feel like it was Forrest Gump, right? Right. And, see, that's, and, I, and that's one of the things that I wanted to touch on is that I don't feel like this film knew how to market itself. Yeah. Do you? Well, I'd understood that one of the things I'd read was they were going to make this big push, $120 million worth of marketing, and then almost immediately after some poor test audience responses, pulled back half that. the advertising. The, the movie didn't seem really know how to handle itself with the separation in the toys or the action figures versus real life uh, it was a cool concept and like you can see where he's dealing with things through his imagination and through these stories and and the action figures but there was never really like a clear use of the action figures 
like to me it was like oh it's just cool graphics so people go see this thing where Steve Crow's an action figure and a person. I will say that the animation was yeah. why I was initially interested yeah. too because it I looked awesome. I, yeah, we I liked the use of an uncanny valley look in this one. Yeah, I think I mean, that it, they it really served, utilized it. It served it served the purpose of what they were trying to do. Right. But I feel like when they put this film together and when it when they were looking at, okay, how do we market this? Who are we selling it to? Mm -hmm. um, it seems like some of the marketing that I saw almost tried to pair this off as like a feel-good family movie, but it's way too weird for that. Yeah. There's and it's there was actually an entire family behind me watching the movie, yeah. and I thought that's, that's weird. Yeah, I think there was. I remember the initial push back, like when you said back when it was still called the Women of Marwin. The people that I saw talking about it the most were women because they were like, "Whoa, Leslie Mann! Whoa, Janelle Monae! Whoa, yeah. Merritt Weaver! We love these ladies. Now we're interested." Those great. Well, actresses. I feel like that initial marketing. Was to capture the tone, the the kind of the society right now of you know women yeah. and w women fighting, women fighting back. So it was like this group of women are going to save this guy right. in a sentence. That's what that movie looked like, yeah. right? You and know, not knowing anything about it, right? And right? I was, I got excited for that because it was a lot of women that I wanted to like Janelle Monae. I could have used a little gift. more Janelle Monae yeah. in the movie, well, by the way. Janelle yeah. Monae. We could have used this. This film has a severely underserved cast. Yeah. Um. In terms and in terms of like. Like, it has a, a wonderful female cast, but all of their purpose is in service yeah. of Steve Carell's the, character. Mm -hmm. The section when when Leslie Mann comes in and introduces herself, the script right there, when they're outside and, and Steve Carell doesn't know what he's doing, it's like, hi, how are you? Dot, 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 dot. I'm the neighbor, dot, 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 dot. You're like, what is going on in this conversation? And I, and I feel like uh, there were several times in the film where they tried to lean into kind of the expectation that we have with Steve Carell, which is that kind of cringe comedy mm -hmm. uh, that's associated with him from his time on The Office. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like the, his interactions with uh, Nicole across the street, uh, they are so cringy yeah. that... It's 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 hard not to say that they were kind of playing into the expectations of what we know from Steve Carell. And some of the reviews that I've read um, were, I feel like they misread those scenes in terms of it, that we're trying to view like his actions or the way that he's talking to Nicole as being endearing or that we're supposed to be like, oh, poor him. But I don't think that's how the film was actually trying to play it. I think that there was it was supposed to be. You know, we are supposed to be cringing at his antics. And that's one of the things that I, I do feel the film is very tonally inconsistent across the board as far as how they present Mark and his world and how we're supposed to look at him. Because, of course, we're supposed to empathize with him. Nobody uh, should look at somebody who's been the victim of a violent hate crime and not empathize with that person and not want to see them, you know, you know, have some sort of like overcome their their issues and have you know their happy ending but at the same time the they left enough of a rough edge on that character that we're not supposed to fully be able to embrace him as well so there were some moments that i feel like i saw the glimmer of what this film could have been but it just didn't quite get there for me but does that kind of glossy like you said kind of polishing up the rough edges a little does that then make the grittier story the documentary? So it made me want to watch the documentary, yeah, right? Same here. To dig deeper. Yeah. So I came out feeling like I had my popcorn, I had my large drink, I was entertained. I, had, I, I, 
felt the, the I didn't have any problem with any of the acting in the movie. No, the, yeah, acting, the, acting, was, the acting was you know, amazing. This was the the sequences of the the with the action figures really creative, really entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me want to watch the documentary, but I don't know that other I don't know that everybody would want to dig that much deeper, right? Yeah, I, f- right. I feel like what was presented is very surface level. Yeah. And I feel like Again, this movie didn't know how to market itself. The mar- the people that it did market to came in expecting one thing, got another. So the people that might enjoy this never saw any marketing that would indicate that they would, you know? Um, and by the time it did reach them, it was just in about, this movie's horrible. Yeah, and yeah, then right. by then they'd heard so many terrible things through the grapevine, through, like, reviews, and right. I'm not going to bother going see it. Um, but I, I will say... That I do think that people should see it in order to come up with their own views. And well, I feel opinions. I feel that I, way about every film. Well, like, yeah, I don't I know, feel like but, anybody should dismiss anything without seeing it for themselves. And I, I will say this: I will say this. Listen to our analysis, but our personal opinions about how things should change aren't necessarily objective creatively. We're presenting ideas as to how. Oh no, we bring our bias to the table. We bring every, our, yeah, <laughs> every single oh, week. We have Here's to. We, if we if we only filled it with objective analysis, this would be only a fifteen minute podcast. <laughs> well, any show. inspired by a true story, fictionalized, you know, film yeah. is always right. going to have. You know, it's it's in the movie, right? Some characters right. have been. Situations have been combined for dramatic effort. Yeah. And, right, or, right. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. No, yeah, it changes always, a lot. We're always going to probably have this discussion when we do anything that's based on a true story. Is at what point does it become so fantasized that it's not even the real story? What what from real life would have made a better narrative? Because we do look at things narratively. Yeah. Um, another thing that I had brought up to Jake, and I'm I'm curious what your opinions are on this, is that. Uh, it, so it is true that Mark Hogan Camp does love to wear women's shoes and nylons. That is true. That was yep. that was the reason why he was beaten up mm-hmm. because he admitted to it uh, at the bar after drinking. Because he was drinking and was yep. a cross dresser. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah I like to wear women's clothes right. sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. And I mean, who doesn't? And, but he loves boobs too. You know, yeah, Eddie yeah. Izzard likes to wear high heels, yeah. and he likes boobs yeah. too. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, exactly. You know. <laughs> so, but I almost feel like the movie. In its attempt to kind of showcase how okay that is, almost comes off like it's fetishizing. And yeah, was almost, it was it a fetish or was it, it a kink? Or a well, he, like, well, like he, it the way that he just, said he, the way that he explained it, he said it's not really a fetish. No, yeah, he just likes just, to wear. He he thinks it's comfortable, and for him too, especially after. He had gone back from physical therapy wearing heels was actually better yeah, on his legs and hips yeah, to help that, him with balance. That's what I thought was interesting was that was a fact that they omitted is the yeah. fact that the heels actually became a part of his healing process in terms of his physical therapy. They were uh, they, they were an accommodation for him that helped him to get through that. Right. And I felt like that might have been an interesting thing to include. Yeah. But, I mean, we only saw a short snippet of his physical therapy him falling yeah right. it, it was a it was a 30 second moment between him and janelle monet but it was which also has her own issues and that she's pushing through in the physical therapy right. with her missing but foot and everything. he but point being though he he did wear women's shoes and nylons before but from what i understand it was not a kink thing it was not a fetish mm-hmm. thing it was literally just this is comfortable and then after the accident he's like wow this is even more comfortable now physically because i just feel like they help me with balance they help me with walking but the way the movie presented it is that it was almost like and they're kind of harping on it mm-hmm. to show that they were okay with it in the movie almost comes off as being so okay that they're almost fetishizing it and they're like 
I don't think that it was necessarily. I don't think that I'm on that level with it. Um, I, I definitely do feel that they were trying to use it as a point of emphasis um, to kind of give you a. I feel like it was meant to be a moment for the audience to go, okay, this is how you know that this person, like, we're supposed to look at the narrative in terms of, okay, what happened to him was a direct result of him being off kilter, uh, or what society would consider to be off kilter. Mainstream society would consider to be a little bit, you know, not towards the center. So the, I feel like it was them continuously pointing it out as being a normal part of his life and him, you know, um, advocating for it in a way it's like, oh, this isn't a sexual fetish. This isn't something that's a kink for me. It's just something that makes me feel comfortable. That rationalizing it and that uh, showing it and kind of normalizing it was kind of, I think, in an attempt to show how his personality quirks were quirky independent of that, if that makes sense. Almost. I just, I just feel like... The way that they hovered on it was a little lurid, to me. I can see how I can see how you might make make that like make that assumption. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was like drilling her 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 gonna drill a hole in the wall kind of thing, but I, I it almost felt a little like in their attempts to show how not fetishy it was. It came off fetishy. I don't mm -hmm. think. Yeah, I don't think that that Steve Carell's character was the fetishy one. I think the camera was. Okay, that okay that makes That's sense. That's what I was saying more of is that I don't think Carell came off as the fetishist here. Okay. I think we were kind of meant to look at it as, as our own fetish. There's like, something else there like, that we're not really supposed see, to. See, my take on it was like prior to the beating, it was a fetish. They had a high heel fetish. That was my take on it. And then that afterwards, everybody around him just sort of accepted, like, we're okay with this yeah, because yeah. he's been beaten to a pulp. Yeah. And so we're just going to all be we're like, okay. we're okay with this. You know, I, I, having personally had experience with people who have foot fetishes or or high heel fetishes or uh shrinking fantasies. Oh yeah. Uh that all came together for me too thinking thinking wow it kind of gave me a little bit of a a different perspective on uh people I know that for example um you know what what is the what is the deeper root of that is it some uh fascination with their mother that was never resolved because mm -hmm. that all seems to all tie together the shrinking fantasy of the high heels yeah. and the women's feet and shoes and you know so I... it must have been a really uh, enlightening experience to work with Quentin Tarantino <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say there's some pictures of me holding a Doctor Who figure maybe that's why I hate Doctor Who now yeah. I just thought about that um, and we support so, this. Yeah. We, we, we are we are saying this, but this is this is a uh, a, a sex positive and kink friendly space. I mean, I am I'm not saying this to be like yeah, that fetishes because that's I love Quentin Tarantino movies. But anyway, I do too. Uh, we're we're covering Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We're not skipping over that. But uh, no, but I I did think that it, it, the camera was fetishizing what was not. A fetish mm. for someone if that makes any sense it does make sense oh. i can see how that could be a takeaway yeah. from this particular yeah. film and I, I don't know so like i'm, I'm not saying i feel like there's a lot in this film that was not intended that the audience could yeah. take away at any given it's point like you're looking for so many things to grasp at certain points and when you're leaving that theater you're like what did i miss or is there more as i was, was as i was watching good? it I, I i felt the wheels in my head turning mm -hmm. as i was watching this movie going 
what does this want to do? What is it trying like, to what tell are, me? What, like, what is the narrative arc? What is, you know, what is it that I'm supposed to be anticipating? What is it that I'm supposed to be, you know, is it trying to deconstruct some sort of, like element of the feel good overcome your trauma like genre thing like I didn't know what the movie was trying to do and I feel like really like I told Meredith I felt this movie was a very uh, cart before the horse in terms of whenever they were developing developing it I felt like it was some of Robert Zemeckis's uh, I want to do weird crap for the sake of doing weird crap phase that he's in with his like mocap obsession obsession that he has that he's going back to like Polar Express um, and so I felt like he was just like I want to do something with that. I, I like the action figure idea. Yeah. And then, like, the script came second. I feel like, the, in terms of this film, the visual was the primary. It was because those those elements of utilizing the scale models and the way that he showed the town and the way that the stories played out, those were very well staged. They looked great. I liked, like, the movements... Some of the things that I really liked was the subtle transition between, like, whenever um, a doll would be in action, then get and shot, then, and then and just, like, kind of plank. Yeah. I yeah. liked that subtle transition, that quick transition. And it was, visually, it was very, very appealing. But narratively, the movie is all over the place. And that was actually another change that I did like and I did think worked, is that in real life, he doesn't build stationary dollhouses it's a, it's, it's a like set. sets. It's, it's like, like a movie it's like the old, it's like the old Hollywood sound yeah, stages. Yeah, they'll build it and like deconstruct it. But again, that's another change with the fact that it was right there by his house. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that changes the story all that no, much. No, it just it just makes it more visually it's a, appealing. It's a more visually appealing choice. That's a choice that I I feel worked. Well, that's a drama. That's a dramatization choice yeah. that it wouldn't have been as visually interesting had they gone the real life route. Right. Um. So that in is in service to making the film more cinematic. It's yeah. the same thing. Um. I was having a conversation with a colleague not too long ago. You talk about... to someone that's not me? Oh, yes. <laughs> Sometimes I I occasionally like to talk to people who know what they're talking about. Um, so I was having this discussion about whenever you adapt stage plays for film mm -hmm. and the things that you have to do in service of making those stories more cinematic to work cinematically sometimes what works on stage does not work in a film and vice versa so i felt like that element of it i was completely fine yeah. with it yeah. um and streamlining streamlining ele uh, elements of the actual narrative and making it uh more palatable that's fine you know combining characters changing names that's entirely fine but again i feel like those changes didn't necessarily enhance the narrative at all, but they didn't take, but certain changes did take away. Yeah. You know, I, I would have liked to have seen, I would have liked to have seen something that was more narratively fulfilling because I feel like, I felt like honestly, the only narratively fulfilling moment of the film was when Steve Carell asked Merritt Weaver if they can get sushi. Yeah. That was like, finally right. something's happened. Yeah. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah. There's a tiny arc. Yeah. There's a tiny arc, but all the arcs are resolved within a 10 minute span of the narrative. Right there. Like the there's, there's wheel spinning, wheel spinning for a good two acts. And then Everything that happens happens in the third act, but by then you're just so drained by the lack of, you know, a a, a narrative hook that you're just like, ah, finally! It's yeah. not a, it's not a, oh yay, I love this payoff. It's a finally yeah. moment, and I think that was kind of my main so takeaway I, with it. I have a question for all three of you. So, at, at what point does the movie become? A bad movie for completely narrative and uh, technical reasons, 
And at what point is it a bad movie because it's not exactly what we expected and not as much in service to the story? Like, where is the line between objective and subjective in our current discussion? I think objectively speaking, the script needed a few more passes before it was filmable. Um, it needed something, and I would, I would honestly wish they had made more changes to the actual real-life narrative to make it more cinematically, narratively enjoyable. Because this film, in terms of the way it's paced, in terms of the way that we look at our expectations with escalating action, building to climax, it does not work for me. Yeah. And what about Stefan Bryan? You know, it's it's interesting because I was thinking about how we were talking about Aquaman earlier, and yeah. the thing about, I don't I'm not super deep into all the superhero movies, so I didn't mm -hmm. see what's what's the one where Aquaman was. I didn't even see the uh, one. Justice League. Yeah. I didn't even see Justice League. You, didn't you miss missed anything. nothing. So, <laughs> so to me, it was interesting that both of these had in common that you are supposed to just uh, just kind of accept everything as it's immediately. But there was no like. Hmm, that's odd. Yeah. Like in Aquaman, everybody's like, "Yep, this is this all. Yep, it's perfectly normal that this woman well, came out of the ocean and well, I'm, I'm going to have a baby with her." And <laughs> you know, well, well, as, I guess they have as, compatible reproductive. You know, yeah, oh, yeah. that yeah. seems like this should even make sense. As our uh, as our guest explained, he kept a running tally of the number of times he was confused <laughs> during that film. That's hilarious. Because that is the only way you make it through that film yeah. without losing your mind. Yeah. And I, I like how you said that. It's like you have to just roll with it. Um, but I feel like with a with a film that is adapted from a comic book, there is some element of, oh, you just have to you have to accept this in terms of this is a fantasy that is, you know, reveling in its world building. Whereas Welcome to Marwin, even though it is channeling a fantasy to tell a story, it is set in the real world, and there right. are real-world expectations, and whenever you have a film that is ostensibly ad adapted from a documentary, the audience goes in with expectations that the things that are going on in that narrative will make sense, yeah. and that you're not going to be left scratching your head and or wondering what the so point is. So do you is. feel like like maybe the, the, the objectivity line is more about how they tell the story to kind of be thematically parallel to the real-life story, even if they have to make some subjective changes? Yes. Okay. What yeah. about you, Brian? Uh, there's a scene in the movie that I think is where I was like, this isn't going anywhere, and where I decided it was kind of a bad movie. It was every scene, there right? There was a lot of them. But it's the scene where he's he leaves the, the little Jeep buggy on his mailbox, and he goes over and he talks to the neighbor, uh, and then her ex-boyfriend shows up, which, like, you thought he was going to play a much bigger role in everything the, that right. he did. Yeah. yeah. And, and in the moment when he... Runs back across, gets his jeep, and like the jeep full of the women of Marwin was not affected by any mean shape, way, or form. Was like, well, that's it. I'm just like this movie isn't going anywhere. You and think and I'm just, fake, it, a fake building and some people, yeah, and yeah, some people would consider, it, and some people would say, like, oh, that's a that's a subversion of expectations. No, it's just not good writing. It's like where where is it supposed to go? You've said it many times, and it's like it just didn't know where to go. And it's like when you reach to that point, somewhere where there should have been a climax showing up, and like, and I like, and I feel like storylines coming together, like it just didn't happen. And, and, and I feel like the only reason that the boyfriend existed was to give 
uh, the catalyst for the climax. Yeah. But it was unearned. There it was, was completely no unearned. There was reason for it to be there. Side note, uh, our friend Brian Guanajuato says, shout out to fellow Brian. <laughs> yeah, when there's one, there's five Brians. Yeah. <laughs> I did appreciate one, Brian. <laughs> I did appreciate the fact that it wasn't that the Mark Hogenkamp character was not this sort of um, Forrest Gump, Rain Man, sort of uh, like innocent, powers, ch innocent ch childlike, innocent. You know, he liked boobs and he well, there he, was he, he watched up, porn he straight up said that his favorite actress was, was from a porn, porn yeah, which exactly. was robert zemeckis's wife by the way yes, i, I know, found right? out <laughs> I was like, wow. which i thought was which i actually did chuckle at that in the movie because i'm like okay that's her and this is her who's the yeah. french character yeah. like i'm like who's the there's french character lot, so yeah, there's a lot of connections and, there. and it's it's funny because uh meredith and i talked a little bit about how whenever you see people dealing with trauma in film there seems to be well outside of a combat veteran yeah the combat the way that they portray combat veteran PTSD and PTSD of anyone who has experienced a trauma outside of combat is way different yeah so like this film and other films that deal with traumatic experiences and people dealing with PTSD there seems to be we we get that sense of like they, there almost is an infantilism yeah, um, on I, display. I'm going to recommend that people read uh, Kristen Lopez at uh, Film School Rejects. Wrote an excellent, excellent essay on the portrayal of disability and mental health. And I'm going to link that and, whenever, yes, I, put please the, do. whenever I, I put the uh, episode up on our page. I think she says things a lot. But she said it first, and she will say it better than we could regarding right. uh, disability right. and mental illness. So we probably aren't going to touch on that nearly as much in this in the last 15 minutes here simply because you should be reading what she has to say. Yeah. Not it's, it's, it's not really, I don't have the expertise to put that into words in a way that will make a lot of sense. So I'm just going to keep my trap shut. She's one of the best voices when it comes to discussing disability in media as a, as a disabled film critic. So Kristen right. Lopez at, at film school rejects is who you should be listening to on this subject yeah. more so than us. We, we will, we will brush up against what she said and mention the, the infantilism like yeah. you said. Um, but at the same time, he was infantilized in a different way, you know, because you said he's still not necessarily like childlike. He's, no, he's, he's just like... he's socially awkward to a point that it um, it drives. I get I guess that's really his arc is him overcoming his social anxiety. Yeah. Well, and... there's a point where she's flipping through the sketchbook and yeah. look, and it's like, yeah. oh, I know. Look at that. All of the, you start to get to the like kind of darker images. Yeah. Harkening back to. There's still that part of him inside yeah. that was where he was before, right. you know, and you kind of get the, you get, you feel that, um, like, uh, oh yeah, that's right. He is a full grown man. That yeah. is, yeah. yeah. And there was also the scene where he's photographing Merritt Weaver's character, like having her top ripped off yeah. as a, as a Why am I Barbie. running away with my top off? <laughs> Where's my top? They do kind of touch on it. Like I said, in real life, the, the situations that he put his dolls in were a lot more disturbing and also and i'm okay with them not yeah and i'm okay with them and the reason not including some of the more graphic stuff that he and had the, done the reason why the i bring story. up the and the reason why i bring up the social awkwardness especially whenever it result results in like that moment where he uh proposes to his neighbor um also that was that was a life. major change from not. he he never he never wanted to 
have a relationship because he didn't want to be left alone again. He never had that. He's just he's just like I'm going to be alone because I don't want to be hurt again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the and so the Nicole character and another woman that's kind of a composite. They were married women that he was friends with, and he did admit to having crushes on them. But like you said, didn't really want to pursue anything anyway because he preferred being and, by himself. And they did make that change because if they had not, there would have been, there would have been no dramatic Nobody. conflict yeah. no in the third act whatsoever. No, none. There would have been nothing for there would have been nothing to show his growth. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think is ultimately the downfall of the film is that we want to see characters have an arc. We don't like having a main central character in a narrative that is that static. And he can, he remained like just it was a flat line well, up until the I, last 15 I will minutes. Say, I will say that static characters can work in some situations. Yes. Uh, comedically, they can work they depending. Work. Uh, there are some, you know. But ostensibly, you know, B movies and action movies where it's fine. They don't have but to have ostensibly, an arc. This something is, that's a drama. Ostensibly, yeah. this is a character piece and a drama. Yeah, I mean, the, it has it had some work. moments of humor. Um, I, the the one moment that actually did make me legitimately laugh is, of course it can fly, yeah. and then the wheels on the DeLorean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, Robert Zemeckis. Uh, the other oh, yeah. the other scene that made me laugh quite a bit was the one where uh, the hoagie doll was praying in the church, and, and the then Nazi his head turns yeah. around, and instead of yeah, his head turns around. There was some really I I liked when we Clever. were reminded that the dolls were dolls yeah. just in their physicality. That was the animated segments ripping, were, were so well done. His arm well, there was also yeah, that good like Calvin and Hobbes kind of moments too of of with like when the dolls are just in the jeep parked yeah. by yeah. the mailbox and they're just <laughs> they're just they're, they're, they're just yeah. dolls. You know, that's a, that's yeah. a great way to to the Calvin and Hobbes thing. That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. Perfect analogy. Did you feel like you were left hanging a little bit with the whole Deja Witch of Belgium? Magical, yeah. what was it kind of thing? Well, I mean, it was, it was supposed it was supposed to represent his addiction to the o- to yeah. the opiates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And my thing was that uh, they kept referring to her as Deja Thoris, and I'm like, is that a direct reference to Edgar Rice Burroughs? It, or there's no way it wasn't because he, yeah. I think he and, was very much influenced by yeah. Burroughs. Yeah. So I was like. Can, can can you confirm that for me, or it's going to get really weird? Yeah. And it took me doing research outside to say yes, that was it yeah. was a direct reference. Oh, See, I, now I I'm going to look that up because yeah. I didn't even yeah. know that. No, We're I, like, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, who? I was looking at the cast list. Was Diane Kruger the milkmaid, or was that somebody? Well, who was she? Diane Kruger was the was witch. The witch. That's, yeah. Okay. I never realized that until now. Yeah. And it was in- it was interesting because really... that was one of the things that uh, kind of a weird sidebar was. Uh, I was reading an interview with her about how she gets pretty much offered only Nazi roles, and so in this Aww. in this film, uh, she you know there it's she was there were Nazis abound, but she was not one of them. Yeah. She was Nazi adjacent yeah. for once. For a while. No, no, for a while. she's the very end. She's oh, yeah. a Nazi. Ah, oh, dang it. Spoilers. Yep. Spoilers. Yeah. They're all Nazis. <laughs> yeah. So overall, I, you Nazi know, my kind of overall feeling that I walked away with was there were these very sort of ham-fisted, broad-stroked uh, parallels of, for example, nobody can get in the doll world. Nobody can get near me. They oh, get killed. Yeah. Oh, so and cool. obviously being like in real life, he's not letting anybody right. get near him. And then also what we've talked about of these sort of incomplete or anticlimactic, you're thinking something's going to happen and then it doesn't. doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I feel like there's very little in the way of repercussion for what does get introduced, which is kind of unfortunate. 
Mm-hmm. And and it really, I would have, I could have taken another few minutes to see another scene with Janelle Monae, to see another oh, yeah. scene yeah. with his uh, his home health care worker. Like I said, I feel like another pass on the script to give it some room to breathe and to inject some uh, some like narrative cohesive tissue would have been very, very much appreciated because, I mean, it was only it was just under two hours. It was just under it was two hours. It could have it could have stood a, you know, let, let's tack on an additional eight minutes. Yeah. What's yeah. an additional eight minutes? Dramas, dramas can usually do pretty well if they're well paced yeah. for a two hour movie. Yeah, it just depends. Two and a half sometimes, I guess, depending I on. the pacing was fairly good in this movie. It just there was a lot being brought up that never got yeah, there addressed was, yeah. in I'll that say, pace. I'll say this as a preview for next week. It didn't feel as long as Vice did. Oh, we're going to have fun <laughs> with Vice next week. <laughs> I, go see, I still need to go see that. Yeah. I need a movie pass. And, and it's, it feels anymore. like the next it feels like the next 3 weeks I'm just going to be hammering on pacing because mm. when we get to the mule I want to talk about that as well. I haven't seen that one yet. I'm seeing it next week. Mm. It's it's uh, I, I won't say anything because I want, we're doing an episode about it, so I'm not going to yeah. throw that away for free right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you could get next week, or just yeah, it's like now. No, it's like I just, I it, it looks a little yeah. bit to me though. Bill Hader's Clint Eastwood impression from uh, <laughs> yes. from uh, oh my god, I can't think of the name. Uh, the the what the car with the oh you know, Gran Torino. Thank oh, you, yeah, Gran yeah. Torino. Yes, which. I could talk all about that Which, movie. Oh, There's Hader's a lot of things great. about that movie I'd like to talk about. But yeah, Bill Hader's old Clint Eastwood impression with his pants up to here. Yeah. <laughs> it's you're not wrong. Yeah. You're not wrong. All right, 90s, well, late nineties? He, no, no, he said ninety. No, not Bill Hader. Oh, uh, Clint Eastwood's not ninety. Either. Clint, Clint Eastwood is in his eighties. He's yeah. he's up there. Uh, this, I mean, that's why I wanted to cover the Mule was because this is likely the last thing he will. Definitely the last thing he's starring in, at least according to him, and probably his last directorial work as well. Um, he does not... I don't, I don't think he's got it in him to do a uh, another a another round. That's a lot of work. Um, I've, I've got to have a conversation with this chair. <laughs> oh. I have to say, I was surprised to see that the Rotten Tomatoes score for Marvin was 27, which I thought, that's... A little harsh. Well, I can see why I can see why professional critics savaged this film. Except for Richard Roper from Chicago, who loved it apparently. Because I mean, I'm not like I don't consider myself to be a professional critic, Mm -hmm. um, but I can see why this got ravaged by professional critics. I I think Um, that we're underselling ourselves by not saying we're professional critics. We are. We by by saying by saying I'm not a professional critic. I mean that is not my. Uh, that is my not my singular focus in life. But it doesn't have to be for you to be a professional at something. It's how I see it. I mean, the way I see it is... Okay, I will pro- say this. My primary function is not as a film critic. That's not yeah, my... Yeah, your pro- primary function is not, but we... we Our film criticism is such to where a radio station gives us a platform every week, and that... Uh, it's just people, because they realize we're the, they haven't realized that we're still here yet. Please people, keep your voice down. <laughs> but I, ta- I take the I take the Rotten Tomatoes score with a grain of salt because yeah. Bumblebee had a ninety eight percent. Bumblebee uh, apparently by people that I trust have said that it is uh, actually an endearing film. That had this been the catalyst for the franchise, it would have been a much healthier place. Someone because it takes a lot of cues from the uh, the late eighties Amblin films. Your, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it takes a well spe- specifically <laughs> the, the movie. Well, I mean, it it is you know it's it's the prototypical a child in their car film, but yeah. uh, it, I mean it was directed by Travis Knight who did uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, oh, which was an excellent. 
violent yeah. film. Um, it doesn't have any of the uh, the issues with toxic masculinity that I, were brought to it by Michael Bay. I think someone on Twitter referred to it as a horse girl movie, but the horse is a is a car that turns into a robot. That makes sense. Also, it has John Cena, and I'm not going to um, I'm not going to say anything bad about John Cena because I that that well, man he could probably treasure. hurt you if you did. And also, Blockers was great. Yeah, Blockers was great. That was a good one. So so yeah, um, Rotten Tomatoes is just one of those things where I don't. Um, I don't have time because we've only got about five minutes left. Um, but uh, I, I, so I'm not going to launch into a tirade. They're aggregate scoring. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to launch into my tirade about the Last Jedi because uh, I don't have the time um, or the energy. Uh, oh, save it for Star Wars. Oh, <laughs> you can wait a year. So, year so what about Steve? So Steve Carell has this movie, and then right before it is another very dramatic movie of Steve Carell's, right? The uh with the sun with the drug I can't I can't I'm to- I completely acting like my about. I can't think of titles of you anything know, the today. Thing with the drugs. Right. Uh, uh is, was that was that Ben is back or No, Ben is back. No, that was beautiful, uh beautiful boy. My beautiful boy. boy. Thank you. Ben is back is Julia Roberts' yeah, movie. I I was mixing those two up. But uh you know, so here's another one which ideally looks like we're going to release this late and it's very mm. dramatic and it's um and I don't know. So and I feel like Steve Carell has pretty much fully transitioned into dramatic work at this point. He's and, not except in Vice. Yeah. <laughs> Preview for next week. Yeah. Spoiler: He's not a dramatic character in Vice. Yeah. Because good old Rummy. Nobody's um, a dramatic character in Vice. Yeah, but he's pretty much transitioned into his serious acting thing. So mm. anyway. Um, well, we need to wrap things up. Is there anything else that we absolutely have to talk about before we get out of here? Well, we also have to have our guests make sure that everyone knows where that's to the find last, him. That's I mean, the last thing, Meredith. You know the format. All right, I but I know. but I want to get to the I want to no, get to the I last don't. I want to get to the like. Is there anything about the film that we need to like put a, a bullet point on and like just anything we haven't talked about? I I would tell people I think it's worth watching and then investigating further into the documentary to okay, find so to kind I, of see both sides of the story. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Yeah, man. I'm I yeah. Catch a matinee. Like, if you can catch a $5 showing, it's worth it. I feel like listen to Steph is just good life advice, period. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. Not so much with Brian. Speaking of nope. which, where can we find you, Brian? Uh, yeah, uh, I am Brian Makes Jokes at all the social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I usually just Instagram and just send it to everything else, so follow me there. And Friday at Comedy Sports, 8 o'clock show, I will be performing. I will be in the Friday what? 8 o'clock Comedy Sports Look show now. That. So go to CSEHouston.com <laughs> and get your tickets now. Yeah, yo. And uh, I'm or on at Twitter. The box at... I'll be working there. <laughs> ah, we're all going to be there. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I just got put on that show, actually. Uh, I'm on Twitter at refsteph.com. And um, yeah, should be following. follow me there. It'd be great. Yeah, follow, follow both of our wonderful guests. And uh, hopefully, uh, some of y'all can make it out to that show. Mm. I will probably uh, be torturing. Uh, myself by going to see that Dog's Journey movie. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I can't. Homeward Bound? You mean Homeward Bound? It has a CGI cougar, you guys. Oh.
Oh, you're Lord taking you the fact that you went to U of H way too far. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm 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 not gonna watch that movie. But you can find me oh, on uh you can find me on the Twitters and on the Instagrams as at uh, am I right or wrong like typewriter. You can find my co-host at Meredith Nudo. That's M E R E D I T H N U D O. Look for the purple haired robot lady. Yeah, purple haired yeah, robot cool. lady. You can cool. find the show. Um, it's at uh, Pop and Schlock Live on Instagram at Pop Schlock Pod on the Twitters. Follow us for updates. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Um, I'm trying to get us on Pandora, but I don't know if that's going to work out. Uh, so you can find us just about anywhere. But thank you for tuning in, and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs>